This episode is brought to you by Hyperice, the leader in advanced warm-up and recovery technology. They have tons of innovative products, like Venom-heated wearables to help soothe sore back muscles, Normatec compression boots to speed up recovery and increase circulation, and Hypervolt massage guns to improve mobility. Loved by athletes like Naomi Osaka and Erling Holland. Try them yourself. Get 10% off your order with the code MOVE at hyperrice.com. It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. This episode is brought to you by Pepsi Wild Cherry. Pepsi Wild Cherry is bursting with delicious cherry flavor and a sweet, crisp taste that gives you more to go wild for. Getting wild may look different these days, but whether it's opting for a solo Friday binge watch or a big night out, everyone can indulge in their wild side with Pepsi Wild Cherry, also available in Zero Sugar. So grab a Pepsi Wild Cherry and get wild. Hello, welcome to the Snooker Scene Podcast. I'm Dave Hendon. This is a bumper episode. And by bumper episode, it doesn't mean anything that. It just means it's long. <laughs> it just means it's long. And you'll be wondering, when's this going to finish? Um, we've had the Players' Championship in Telford. Mark Allen won it. Congratulations to Mark. Uh, another victory for him. Third victory of the season. It's his sixth tournament win. Fifth ranking event win in two seasons. Um, he's found a way to win. The final... It wasn't a classic in terms of quality, but it was exciting. It wasn't, uh, you know, um, beset by breaks, particularly. There were a lot of close frames. Um, there was a lot of drama. Zhang Ander more than played his part in that, of course. Um, but Mark Allen won it, and he's found the winning formula, and you have to respect that. And all I'll say is it went on till nearly midnight, and I was there, and I would say at least 80% of the crowd remained behind. The crowds were the story in many ways in Telford. It was first tournament there since 2010. What a terrific turnout. Most of the sessions were sold out. It wasn't just that, it was the, the enthusiasm. I mean, the, the Midlands has always been a, a hotbed for snooker. And clearly they'd been a little starved of it. I mean, Wolverhampton had had this tournament, actually, but in commentary, you know, it had the champion champions in years past. But t- the Telford area, Shropshire, you know, they clearly warmed to the event, the fact of the nature of the event, the top players. And, you know, I heard some snooker fans as I was leaving one night really, really enjoyed their trip. So... Thanks to, to them for turning out. It's going to be there next year. Tickets are on sale already, and I'm sure you know they'll be going like hotcakes. And, and the fact that what, what I thought was great was because um, the draw wasn't actually known until the Sunday night, starting Monday. But people still turned up. It wasn't about necessarily who was playing. They just wanted to come and see top class snooker, which they knew they would see there, and it was brilliant. So uh, that was a successful week, I would say, for snooker. Now, just one thing about this podcast. In order to um, save a bit of time, I did record a section of it at the weekend, okay? So <laughs> I didn't really think through um, the permit, sort of the repercussions of that because we've since had several emails in about the same subjects I talk about. So it's a little disjointed, this episode. There people out there saying, so what's new? At one point, you'll hear me say, so now to the emails. But, we're all, but before that, there are already going to be emails I'm going to be reading out, including, of course, our dear friend Alpha Bonzi, who's been in touch he says, my four quick questions are, number one, technically not a great match, so how much of Mark Allen's title win was down to his courage rather than his form? 
I think, well, courage is one word. Resilience is the word I would use. He was determined to win. He was determined to stick in there. Um, I always kind of fancy Allen in close frames. He has got a lot of bottle. That's true. Um, and he's happy to play this way because he, because it's a winning game. So you can't really argue with it. Number two, despite his defeat tonight, things are going rather well for Zhang Ander. Correct. I would agree with that. They are. Um, you know, very, just very impressive what he's doing. Number three, how much encouragement should the young players take from people like Zhang, who's fallen off the tour two or three times in 14 years before something finally clicked last summer? <clears throat> yeah, I mean, it shows, it shows what can be done, I guess. Um, I think what was key in him sort of progressing was that English Open final. It could have gone one of two ways there. It could have been a downer. He could have, you know, been replaying the shots in his head, regretting losing from 7-3 up, or take the positives. And that's what he's done, clearly. And he's, you know, progressed since then. And number four, cheating a bit, but the Saudi Masters ranking event is supposedly a 10-year deal. Is the upcoming Riyadh Masters invitational a one-off? I don't actually know that, uh, Alpha, because their deal's done diff- with different... Um, Parties, the ranking event is essentially sort of um, the Saudi government, I think, and, and this one is done in a, in a different way. So it's a sort of a promoter who's, who's come forward. So um, yeah, so that's that's that really. But we'll, they've got more on the Saudi now. There's, there's 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 emails in the later section which are already recorded about this. So again, it's completely disjointed. But anyway, Darren from County Down in Ireland, living in Toronto has said this, keep up the amazing work on the podcast and commentary. I wrote in a few months back about the Saudi ranking event and if it would ever happen. I think it's a fantastic addition to the tour next year with the amazing prize money on offer. can only help the tour in a massive way and also help the low-ranked players make more money. I find it odd some people are negative towards Saudi, but multiple sports are going there. So why should snooker be any different? I'm just all for growing snooker and I think this will help the game in a massive way. Thank you, Darren. Uh, back to the Players' Championship, Daniel Winfrow. My wife and I visited Telford for the Players' Championship on Thursday. The highlight of the day was frame four of the Gary Wilson-Mark Allen match, where Gary played on needing five snookers to win. From our seats, I could see yourself and Stephen Hendry in the commentary box. As Gary wasted everyone's time, I couldn't help but smile as I could see Stephen sitting with his back to the table on his phone. Overall, we really enjoyed our day. Selby was brilliant in the evening match. Thank you, Daniel. Uh, yes, Stephen, he didn't have his back to the, to the table, etc. Exactly. And I'm sure, I mean, he... On his phone, he was on Q-Tracker, no doubt, looking up uh, vital stats. But uh, he's, I think it's fair to say he's not always um, that sort of uh, impressed by playing on snookers, particularly when you need five, as you, as you say there. <coughs> um, <coughs> Jake Warwick says, I just wanted to send in my thoughts following the recent Players' Championship. I attended twice last week, firstly on Monday for Trump v. Wakelin, then Sunday night for the final session of the final. Been to multiple tournaments before, but never in Telford. I have nothing but good things to say about the tournament, venue, staff and experience. Also being six foot three, I usually struggle in the seating, but these are okay. Having been there for the final session of the final for the Grand Prix and then again on Sunday for the Players' Championship, it's hard to describe how different the atmosphere and tension is in the arena compared to on the TV. You can feel the pressure and expectation growing as it gets towards match ball. Do you get the same experience from the commentary box? Uh, I do, actually. Yeah, you're absolutely right. You feel the tension in the room, absolutely. And the people in the room make that. It's the audience who make that. It's the, the noises and the involuntary sort of reactions that actually create that, that, that vibe. Uh, Jake continues, Congratulations to Mark Allen, who dug in and managed to grind out the win in the end. I stayed around after the presentation and managed to get a photo with and congratulate Mark, who was very courteous and polite with all the fans who remained. However, the standout performance this week has to be from Zhang Ander. 
His rise to success this season is like nothing else we've seen. From journeyman to top 16 in a season is a real achievement. I'm glad I was there to witness how much support he got from the Telford crowd. He seems like a pleasant and humble guy who deserves the success. Thanks again for the continued podcast and commentary work. I enjoyed listening to them during my long commutes along with Nick and Phil. Uh, I, I don't think he means he, he commutes with Nick and Phil. He listens to them as well, I think he's saying. <laughs> now, Matthew Kemp has written in... Uh, I'm happily sitting here watching the Players' Championship final, but could you please answer a couple of questions for me? Firstly, do you know what channel or platform will be showing the inaugural Real Masters tournament at the beginning of March? I do, it's Eurosport. And again, later on in the in the, <laughs> the section already recorded, I'll answer that again. But it'll be on Eurosport, and it's also, I think, on Matchroom Live. There's a team, as I'll explain later, there's a commentary team going out there to commentate on it for the world feed, as it's known. I'm not part of that, but I will be working on Eurosport um, along with Philip Studd, Neil Fold and Dominic Dale. And Matthew also says, is there uh, rules related to your question, if there's one red on the table and my opponent misses the red and leaves a free ball, can you nominate any colour, let's say on this occasion the green ball, and either plant the green onto the red or play a billiard shot and pop the red off said colour? I've never seen this before in a professional snooker match, or amateur for that matter. However... I've been told it's a legal shot. Can you elaborate for me? Finally, I would like to give a shout-out to my club, the Athenian Club in Falmouth, Cornwall. We're a private members' club with well over 200 members, three tables, a bar and our own club steward. We've been honoured and privileged since 2013 to have had exhibitions by pantheons of the game, namely Jimmy White, Steve Davis, John Parrott, Dennis Taylor, Ken Doherty, and most recently last year by Sean the Magician Murphy, who hit a 147 and nearly a back-to-back 147, unfortunately missing the 15th red. Mark Allen is due to visit this year for an exhibition at the end of May. If you're ever down this way, please let me know, and you're welcome to visit our club as a guest of mine for lunch and a pint of Cornish ale. Well, Matthew, I shall certainly uh, bear that in mind. I was down near enough, I suppose, there when I went to interview Ray Reardon, who's not too far away, but uh, if I'm ever down that way, the, the Cornish ale certainly sound very nice. With regards to your query about the free ball, I refer you to the official rules of snooker, uh, section 3, Rule 12, snooker after a foul, uh, and point E, okay, so this is where it's covered. If both a nominated free ball and a ball on a potted, only the ball on is scored unless it was a red, when each ball potted is scored. The nominated free ball is then spotted and the ball on remains off the table. So that, I think, answers that. If both a nominated free ball and a ball on a potted, only the ball on is scored unless it was a red, when each ball potted is scored. Uh, so that's, that seems to confirm what you've been told. With regards to Telford, more a success for World Snooker Tour in terms of ticket sales. I think it's got to be said that 2024 has been a successful year so far for World Snooker Tour. Uh, they upgraded their website. Not everyone, I know, thinks it's great, but I think it's an improvement personally. Um, ticket sales are up. TV viewing figures are up. Um, they've announced the two tournaments in Saudi Arabia. One worth multi-millions of pounds on a 10-year deal. They've announced a new tournament in China. And just last week, they announced a clothing deal with uh, Castor, uh, a clothing company, um, which I think we're going to see first in Riyadh next week and then in other events as well. And that's something that I know a lot of players... I mean, I'm not that bothered about clothing, personally. I never have been. But I know a lot of players would like to see that modernised. And again, it's a step forward. Wilson Couture also, of course, um, got Johnston, Johnston's paint on board for the Players and Tour Championship, which is a, a very different sponsor to gambling. And in, in various ways, I think things are becoming more professional. The branding is better. I think the sets are really good. I think there's a general feel of professionalism within sort of tournaments um, that maybe wasn't always there before. 
And I think it's important to to say all that because, you know, a lot of people have criticised Will Snooker. I have in the past for various things, but I think there are things that are improving, and we're seeing tangible benefits of that um, in in the things I've just mentioned, and, and certainly new tournaments is always is always a good thing. And we've had an email here from Joe in Hungary who sort of takes this takes up a, a more specific point here. He says, first, I'd like to say how much the social media output of World Snooker Tour has improved. The content is more frequent and varied, which is nice to see. However, I wanted to say some of the comments that are posted, especially on YouTube, are crazy. They seem to be totally bizarre and aren't deleted or moderated. I know it's an almost impossible task, but it doesn't make for good optics. It's the same on the Eurosport YouTube, but to a lesser extent. I was curious if you'd seen it and what your thoughts are on it. Lastly, I wanted to ask about media rights. Do WST own them? If so, why don't they do highlights packages on YouTube? They post key frames or winning moments, but in short form. PDC Darts do fantastic daily highlights on their YouTube, and I thought Snooker could do the same. Same to Eurosport. They do key frames, but not match highlights. This would generate income from ads and sponsors. I also think they could use their back catalogue more with the World Championship Masters dating back 40 years. That's a ton of potential content. Views equals cash, and since WST is a business... I think they're missing out. Anyway, thanks for the great pod. Well, thank you, Joe. Um, on the point about highlights, um, they are limited to three minutes a day under their broadcast contracts. So they can't show any more than that. And obviously, you know, I mean, three minutes, you can get quite a lot into three minutes. I, I certainly think they could do shots of the day. I think that's something you would watch on a bus to work or a train. Um, so I think possibly they could be more imaginative with the highlights that they offer. But in terms of the contracts, you know, they can't show much more than three minutes. So it does slightly limit them. Um, the, world, the social media team, uh, they're, not, they're not robots. They're real people. Sam, Ollie and Chris are their names. All good guys, really good guys doing a good job and work very hard. There's only three of them. And that in itself limits them, I guess, to, to things they can do. But um, I'm glad that you feel they're doing a good job. But on, on the point of the YouTube comments, this is something I've noticed. I tend not to read comments full stop <laughs> on anything because it can be a bit demented a lot of it let's be honest but YouTube seems to be the worst of all and I think what makes it the worst of all is it's one of the few platforms where you can actually moderate it if someone sends in a tweet you can't do anything about that it's going to be there I think that's the same with Facebook and it's the same with a lot of these platforms but YouTube you do actually have the option to delete comments block comments and Let's be clear, a lot of the stuff that's posted on there is fine. It's just people with opinions. But there's a difference between saying, look, if you say, like, player X is boring, I don't like watching them, I can't stand how they play the game. It's not very nice, but that's an opinion. Okay, fine. But if you say, in my opinion, player X is always on drugs when they play, he's a druggie uh, in every match he plays, that is libelous. <laughs> okay, it's straightforward libel. It's libelous to call people cheats. It's libelous to say that they threw matches. And a lot of the stuff on there is because it's anonymous is just there to essentially garner attention and cause trouble and it, it's not a good look for snooker that the body that is running the professional game or running the professional circuit is allowing all this stuff to be up there they've got videos there being watched by a hundred thousand people and if you venture into the comments you are reading things about players that are not right um in many cases so i the, the point i i suppose and you make it yourself, is it would be a lot of time to go through it and and moderate the comments because, you know, it, 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 they've got other things to do, clearly, than do that, and they don't want to be wading through that all day long. But I'm not sure it's quite um, quite right now either just to leave it 
as it is, like the Wild West. My idea would be to actually say to the community there, look, we value your feedback, but you've got to actually treat the game with respect and not come on and say these things. Maybe put a video up and say, look, this is these are the sort of... Um, we, we think a lot about etiquette in snooker. This is the etiquette we would like to see on our own channel. And then you give people the, the option to either do that or not do that. And if they don't do that, then it might come the time to just block comments. My theory is that they don't want to block comments because they are worried that if people can't comment on the videos, they won't watch them. And if they don't watch them, the videos won't earn any money. But put it this way, when we did Judgment Day last year, they, there's a live chat feature you can have during a live stream that they disabled because in previous years, it was just a cesspit of racism and, and stupidity. And they didn't want that associated with the World Championship, quite rightly. The other point I would make is that, you know, when all the, all the business of the, the Macau Five and all that was kicking off last year, there were journalists and players who received legal letters because of things they'd said about World Snooker Tour. And they're quite right to defend themselves if they feel they've been defamed. Um, but on this platform that they're providing on their YouTube channel, things are being said about players in the comments that are potentially libelous. And that could be something that's quite serious down the line. If a player saw something there about themselves that isn't true, you know, you could see trouble ahead. So I think they need to think about it. And I know that they are um, sort of assessing it, but it ain't very nice, really, um, particularly for people who just want to go there and talk about snooker and leave comments. You know, it's always a very small minority of people who, who ruin it for everyone else, don't they? Um, and, you know, some sort of policy has to be put in place there about how they handle it. It's not easy because it's, it's also just tiresome. <laughs> and, of course, people always say, we just don't read them, which, OK, fine. But some people do read them. And if a player reads something about themselves or, or a family member of a player reads something about themselves that is libelous, quite rightly, they're not going to be happy. Um, we'll move on to Bobby. He says, I've been pondering this one for a while. Can you speak as to what anti-doping measures are in place to mitigate against performance-enhancing drugs? I'm thinking the most useful type for snooker players may be drugs to aid concentration. Uh, such drugs are in common use among university students, particularly in the USA. Many report their ability to focus to be f profoundly improved by such drugs. Potentially, there may also be an advantage to be gained by taking anti-anxiety -anxi medication. Such drugs may allow a player to avoid the often visited Shredsville in high-pressure matches. Clearly, there may well be a genuine medical reason for being pres prescribed such medication, but I do wonder to what extent the sport protects itself from abuse. Is testing done on a random basis? Is it just recreational drugs that are tested? Or are they also screened for performance enhancers? Many thanks for the Trojan work you do. <clears throat> Thank you, Bobby. Um, the snooker is, is affiliated to the International Olympic Committee, so the IOC... Any, any drug that's on their ban list is on the snooker ban list. Quite often when people have failed drugs tests in the past, it's been for taking a cold cure innocently and not realising what's in it. There's all sorts of things in those, in those things that are on the ban list. Thankfully, you know, we're not a sport that relies on, you know, blood doping or steroids or anything like that. Um, so the cases of drugs in snooker have been relatively few and far between. Uh, quite often, recreational drugs like cocaine or marijuana that are illegal, um, whether they're performance enhancing is, is another debate, but normally they haven't been taken for that reason. They've just been taken because <laughs> the players have wanted to take them. Um, but basically, any, any drug on the IOC ban list is not allowed. Um, that's it, really. Um, I don't think it's something that 
is a massive problem at all in snooker, um, which is good, isn't it? You know, because it is a big problem in a lot of other sports. So <laughs> that's the first section of the show. The next section of the show has already been recorded and may include some repetition. Um, the next voice you hear will be mine saying, so now to the emails. So to the emails. And, uh, well, John Skilbeck. Now, John, of course, has been on the podcast. He's written Goody Two Shoes, which is the story of the 1982 World Championship. But he was listening, because we had last week a discussion of Patsy Vega and David Taylor in 1982. Uh, a deliciously niche subject, John says, even by your boundary-pushing standards. Well, thank you. He says, during my research into the World Championship 82 for my book Goody Two Shoes, available in no good bookshops, but very much available on Amazon, I stumbled on footage from that match. As you say, Patsy's lash at the white before it was about to drop in the pocket looked for all the world like a concession. Referee Jim Thorpe then chose to shuffle around the balls to a position he felt was correct, but perhaps he should simply have left them where they finished up after Patsy's head gone moment. Not sure what the rule book would say on this. Anyway, I did a little research while writing the book, and referee Thorpe, quoted in the next day's newspaper, said, and here's the thing, I'm, I'll read the quote out, but here's the thing, the referees these days would not be allowed to talk to the journalists. It's very, uh, very sort of no, huge nervousness about, you know, officialdom being to the media now. But back then, it was the 80s, people could talk. And Jim thought, here's what he said about this incident, OK? And it is on YouTube, the, the actual incident itself. He said, I asked Fagan if he was conceding the frame, and he said no. Fagan apologised profusely, and David Taylor said nothing. He made no complaint. Fagan told me to replace the balls where I liked. I knew the green was on the yellow spot, but I did not know where the blue was. It, it never entered my head to award the frame to David Taylor, and I think all the other referees would have made the same decision as me. Now, John said he asked Patsy about the incident uh, for Goody Two-Shoes, and this is what Patsy Fagan said. He said, I just knocked the ball back out. It was going to go in off. If you're supposed to let it go, in, you're supposed to let it go in the pocket, but worse things have happened, believe me. <laughs> which is not uh, exactly an apology but anyway and uh, David Taylor was also asked, asked about it and he said, uh, he, he said he seemed to regret not challenging what was happening his words were I should have questioned the referee there perhaps needless to say this episode didn't make the final cut for the book but delighted to share this off cut with you well thank you John and uh, I do hope to see you in Sheffield and, and you see we're, we're, one by one we're clearing up the mysteries of the 80s. Uh, it's still the table in 1983 is still perplexing people. We haven't got to the bottom of that yet, but, uh, you know, we, we, we dealt with David Taylor moving his chair against Bill Werbeneck, and now this issue has been, I think, largely cleared up. Uh, now, uh, we've got some banal meetings with snooker players to discuss. Uh, this is a long-running feature. If you've not heard the podcast before, and, <laughs> and believe me, you've not missed much, but uh, there is a, a long-running feature where people have uh, I've met snooker players, but they, they, not a lot's happened other than a nod, maybe a very brief conversation, and sometimes not even that. And indeed, last week we did have people writing in who'd, who'd met people who looked like snooker players, but weren't. Anyway, uh, Tony Finnegan says, I'm still enjoying the podcast, although it's been a while since I last emailed. On the subject of mundane meetings with snooker players, I have a few stories. Last year on the eve of the World Championship, I happened to be walking past the Crucible with my daughter. When I recognised, like, to be honest, if you're walking past the Crucible during the World Championship, you're probably going to see someone <laughs> who's either playing in it or associated with it. But anyway, says, I, I recognised the smartly dressed Stuart Boron Bingham taking a photo of a large image of himself on one of the large tournament promotional banners. He did it very quickly, maybe feeling a bit embarrassed by it. But no need to, Stuart. You should be proud to see a large image of yourself in a public place. I know I would. Anyway, he quickly put his camera away and posed for selfies with a member of the public. When he walked past me, I did not want to bother him, so I just gave him the thumbs up and said, All the best, Stuart. He returned the thumbs up and replied, Cheers, mate. He came across as very friendly and genuine. OK, so not a lot was said there. All the best, Stuart, and cheers, mate. The only words exchanged. My second meeting with a snooker player was none other than the Rocket, Ronnie O'Sullivan. 
or the Essex Exocet, as he was briefly known as. This was at the Crucible again. He was coming out of his hotel with his manager, and as a big Ronnie fan, I was suddenly overcome with nerves and didn't want to approach him. But thankfully, my wife realised this and offered to do it for me. Knowing that sometimes Ronnie can be a bit sharp with fans when in the wrong mood, I reluctantly agreed. However, to my delight, Ronnie couldn't be more obliging and instructed his manager to take a few photos of himself with his arms around my wife. That photo is now framed and takes pride of place in our home. I wouldn't allow just anybody to put their arms around my wife, you know. Again at the Crucible, I witnessed Mark Williams having a drink outside one of the bars. When he stood up t- to leave, he knocked the table and numerous glasses fell to the floor and smashed. <laughs> the fellow patrons all cheered, but as you would expect, Mark took it in good spirits, put his hand up and casually acknowledged the cheering onlookers before moving on. My final meeting with the snooker player wasn't actually a meeting. I recognised him. I was on my summer holiday in the lovely Somerset town of Glastonbury. I was walking through the town centre, a man walked past me and I thought that looked like, but no, it couldn't be. I then saw him again the next day, and yes, it was the Nugget Steve Davis. I realised he had links to Glastonbury because of his appearance at the famous music festival with Utopia Strong. I didn't bother him, though, as he seemed busy shopping. Hopefully there'll be plenty more mundane meetings with snooker players in the future. Uh, and I have to clean... There's a PS here which I have to clean up, OK? Uh, well, I'll just... Yeah, you, you'll understand what I've cleaned up. He says, as a kid in the 90s, I asked Steve James for an autograph, and he told me to F off. But don't read that out. Well, I've read it out now, and, you know, we, we, we don't judge. This is a long time ago. Um, uh, you know, it, it seems to. It seems in recent times players have been more friendly. Now, Reese writes. He says, "I'm not sure if this has been a segment before, uh, but here's my quick story of an awkward encounter with a snooker player. So this is not so much banal as awkward. Okay, me and my close pal. Then one with Steve James sounded quite awkward a moment ago. But anyway, she's me and my close pal Sean attending most days of the 2022 Scottish Open, which was the first year at Meadowbank Edinburgh. As we arrived at the evening session." one of the earlier days, a few of the afternoon games had just ended and we noticed Ricky Walden leaving the building. I'd never had the chance to get a photo with a snooker player, so I thought I'd take the chance and ask him for one, which he happily did for us, and he has attached a photo recent and uh, all, all smiles in it. Just before this, I asked my friend what the scores were in the afternoon games. My friend told me that Ricky had won his match. So after he took the photo and Ricky was walking away, I said, see you tomorrow, Ricky. As we were attending most days of the session, uh, most of the next day's sessions too, he gave us a half smile, half strange, awkward glare, and said nothing. Turns out my friend had looked at an earlier part of the draw on snooker.org, as Ricky had in fact lost his match just before this. I felt terrible after, as he probably thought we were taking the mick out of him, but it was a complete accident. Quite funny looking back, but I thought I'd share this. Well, it, it, uh, Ricky's a lovely bloke. He, he, I'm sure he took it in good part. Um, but, uh, yes, he, the home nations, they can be quite hard to follow, actually, the, the sort of results. So it, it doesn't surprise me that happened. Uh, but anyway, it seems, uh, it seems all was well. Danny Kyle, now this is uh, back to the Players' Championship here. He says, so during both the Welsh Open and the Players' Championship over the last couple of weeks, there have been fairly lengthy breaks in play to enable audience members to receive medical attention. At the Welsh, the players left the table and there was a break of around 10 minutes, and at the players, the entire auditorium was evacuated and there was a break of over 20 minutes. Over the past few years, I've attended quite a few tournaments, and it's a regular occurrence for audience members to faint and require assistance to leave the arena and receive medical attention. However, they are usually carried out of the arena by WST's excellent stewards, with a delay of only a minute or two, with the players usually remaining at the table. Given the length of the two recent delays, I was concerned that there were much more serious medical emergencies occurring. However, in both instances, it was mentioned on the TV coverage that the individual involved was able to walk out of the arena. Are you aware of any change of policy regarding medical emergencies that necessitated the two extended breaks recently, or was it just a coincidence of more urgent attention than usual being required in both cases? I appreciate it's not unusual to have delays in live sport, e.g. raining cricket, but if this is going to be a more frequent occurrence from now on, it could become a bigger issue with audience conditions like the often high room temperatures and access to water coming under more scrutiny. 
Uh, well, thank you, Danny. Um, no, I mean, it, it, each case is, is, is uh, judged on its merits. The case uh, last week in Telford at the Players' Championship, they thought the gentleman had had a heart attack um, and they thought they might have to rush in a defibrillator and therefore they couldn't have the other members of the audience around. So they asked them to leave, which they did, while the medics came in. But thankfully, um, it wasn't as serious as they thought and the gentleman did... Um, I think he may have been in a, pushed out in a wheelchair, but he was he was kind of okay. Um, but obviously, you don't know that at first. So they, you know, quite rightly, the audience welfare has to be paramount. And um, you know, it, it looks serious. Thankfully, maybe it wasn't as serious as it, as it first appeared. But that's why. I mean, it's very unusual for the audience to be evacuated like that. But it was felt that that was the right thing to do. And obviously, you know, it, it has to be paramount in in the minds of the people putting on these events that a large number of people come. And their welfare has to be has to be thought about. I missed out a, a banal meeting here. You see, people think this is carefully planned. <laughs> Nobody thinks that. Ian writes, uh, I decided to attend the WST Classic at Leicester last year, and of course, Mock Selby was in the final. So before what was then the deciding frame, I nipped out to the loo, worried the next frame would start before I got back. However, lo and behold, who came in just before I finished? Only Mark Selby. So no need to rush back then. A brief nod ensued. I don't think we really want to start which t- uh, players we've met in the toilet, so I think that's a little bit uh, a little bit distasteful. But anyway, it says, On the same day, I was outside having a vape, and next to me was Pang Junju. This was uh, in the earlier rounds, having a ciggy. Not sure Pang understood my brummy accent of saying, Hi, you're playing well. He says, I love your pod, and you are great. Well, that's the kind of you, Ian. But, uh, yes, well, it, it, strange tournament. They'll never be held again, that WSD Classic. So Mark Selby's going to, for the rest of his life, basically, <laughs> be the defending champ. Uh we have more serious issues to discuss. The Saudi tournament, of course. A lot of people have got to... In fact, before we do that, uh, I've realised we've got another one on this subject. <laughs> so let's uh, go to uh, Rob Francis. This is Don Banal Meetings with snooker players. As a steadfast listener, I'm already well overdue writing in, but I absolutely cannot stay silent any longer regarding my banal meeting, not with a player, but someone very closely involved in the world of snooker. And it's as banal as they come due to no meeting actually taking place. And therein lies the issue. I've attended many tournaments over the years, met a plethora of wonderful people associated with the scene. And I'm genuinely relatively gregarious when it comes to introducing myself to folk whose work I admire so much. On this occasion, however, I completely and utterly bottled the approach. Despite the sociable setting of the graduate pub in Sheffield, I came to the conclusion that this man had just finished an extremely long day at work during an extremely busy time of the year. And the chances were he would rather not be pestered by a random, mildly intoxicated snooker fan. All well and good. I moved on with my life. Or so I thought. Over the following months, every so often, someone would meet, email into his podcast, expressing how lovely it was to meet him in the ground and how pleased they were to get a photo and the like. Those anecdotes should have been mine, I decry. Episodes with this content should really come with a manner of trigger warning, with my bitter regret and not taking the plunge only grows stronger when I hear such sentiments and the enthusiasm with which these great memories of Renard imparts weariness on my haunted heart. Given this plenty, Rob, I've got to be honest, but anyway. See, I, vow- <laughs> I vowed not to make the same mistake twice should the opportunity arise in Sheffield once again this year. However, and I've decided to k- keep a trademark Clive Everton lime cordial in easy reach at all times to help ensure I can actually speak. It's possible, if not probable, that by the time crucible season is upon us, this, the success uh, of Potter or Notter will have walked his mind and caused him to become some kind of prima donna. But that's a risk I'm willing to take at this point in time. Regardless of what the future holds, I'll always have this picture, ta- I'll always have this picture taken by Queen Snooker B. Kelly Barker, that unbeknownst to me at the time of capture 
features the back of his stat-filled head. Now, of course, this is me, by the way. If anyone, like, I don't want to sound like Mark Yarwood, which is one for the teenagers, but this is me he's talking about. Uh, yes, I mean, I'm, I'm in the graduate most evenings there, to be honest. So, uh, Rob, do come over and say hello. I've got no issue with that at all. Um, and, uh, yeah, so then you can write in uh, next time and, and tell everyone what a horrible person I am. <laughs> but, see, I, 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 there is a picture here. Yes, that is the back of my head. I can tell by the, the baldness in, in the picture. Uh, anyway, Rob, I hope to see you there in Sheffield. I think you'd agree the Saudi uh, thing is a bit more serious, so let's, let's change the tone. Harley Grayling writes, uh, After hearing you read out emails from people about their political views on the Saudi tournament, it has left me frustrated, so I thought I would email in. These people have taken the time to email you moaning at Will Snooker Tour because they have negative political views on the country. This has absolutely nothing to do with snooker. If this tournament was being held in the UK, these people wouldn't be emailing in. They'd be saying how amazing it was for the sport. This announcement is massive for snooker, and with a £2 million plus prize money pot, it's huge for the players as well. I can't possibly see how someone can criticise this. Without seeing the breakdown of the prize money, I can't say with any certainty, but clearly the players will have a huge opportunity... Uh, to take so much, take off so much stress they currently have with earning enough money in a season to live and with keeping their tour cards. It's giving the opportunity for more players to play in a prestigious tournament and it's giving us fans more frames to watch on TV. Politics has absolutely nothing to do with this. I wish people wouldn't criticise WST for doing exactly what the sport needs. And I wish people would take into view how this is going to help so many players on tour towards the bottom of the ranking and the opportunity this gives to them and stop worrying about how the country is run. All that matters is that we have another tournament in the season with a huge prize pot and huge opportunities for the sport and players, not politics. Sorry for the rant. Keep up the great podcast. Thank you, Harley. I mean, it's fair to say, obviously, opinions differ on this, but I think it, it is worth saying that, you know, you can't pay your mortgage with other people's opinions, can you? The, the fact is, this is an opportunity. We're talking about the ranking event here. It's an opportunity for sure for players down the list who, you know, are not sort of sharing the wealth, as it were, to actually get a bit of a slice of it. It's another big tournament. If you do well in, you know, it could really set you up for the season. Um, and obviously the, the spin-offs come, if, if you're doing well in a tournament like that, for the, for the players series later in the year, you'll maybe get some of those events as well. So, yeah, it's kind of, I think about this and I respect opinions on it, but I do think, you know, a lot of the people who have been very strident about it, don't actually have any stake in it at all. If the tournament is on or not on, it doesn't actually affect them. It does affect players, clearly, and other people in the snooker world, but particularly players. Um, and I don't think that they should be sort of be told that they are uncaring or, or ignorant just because they you know, are, are playing in a tournament that they that has been put on and it's an opportunity for them to earn money from. And we've had another email about Saudi. This is from Jochim, Jochim Hacker from Lübeck, I'm going to say, in Germany. Probably isn't pronounced like that, but anyway, regular listener for a while. Oh, hang on, you start earlier than that. You say, just listen to, <laughs> to your latest podcast and your dulcet tones on commentary. I thought I might drop you a quick line in the mid-session break between Williams and Allen at the Players' Championship. One of my big bugbears is long-winded introductions by listeners to their emails, so I thought I got my own back by doing one myself. A regular listener for a while yet, which suffice to say, as far as praise goes... Only Elite Podcasts make my list. Good job. Well, thank you, uh, Joe Jim. Uh, I'm not a great responder to podcasts usually, but with some stuff mentioned recently, the pressure has become too much, so I might as well find some release here. On the Saudi tournament, I must admit uh, that I am... That I find the whole concept of commercialisation in sports and other aspects of life revolting, and even more now the growing trend of political sports washing. But unfortunately, the grim reality is, had World Snooker Tour not cooperated with the Saudis... 
Snooker would have gone there in any case. Most likely the Saudis would have approached the top players individually, and I wonder if anybody who knows any player would have turned down that kind of money. Live golf as an example, anyone. Now, I think this is a good point that you make. You're quite right. In fact, it's a brilliant point. This event probably would have happened anyway. At least it's happening under the auspices of World Snooker Tour, who have some control of the calendar. Imagine if the private private had just come forward and offered this sort of money outside of that. It could have clashed with another tournament. It could have created havoc on the on the calendar. And it would have threatened maybe even some sort of breakaway. So actually, you're quite right in what you say. The, the, you know, if, if this was going to happen, this is the right way for it to happen. Um, uh, it continues here. On a more serious topic, <laughs> we come to the middle finger tapping craze, which you mentioned a few podcasts back, when you claimed it all got started by Tony Mio. Your wording suggested that Mio tapped the middle finger of his bridge hand on purpose. This reminded me of watching snooker in Germany when it was first shown here by Eurosport, and the question about the tapping middle finger was raised by viewers. The doyen of snooker in Germany, Rolf Kalb, explained that this is an inadvertent twitch of nerves. You are saying Rolf Kalb was telling wrong information on Eurosport, or has scientific research proved the great man wrong in the meantime? Well, no, I don't know what Rolf has said, but all I said was in the 80s, the player most associated with that was Tony Mio, and he would do it, I guess, as some sort of nervous thing, but you would definitely in snooker clubs at that time see people doing it because they'd seen it on telly. They didn't know why they were doing it, but they'd seen Tony Mio tap his finger and they thought that's what we did. Um, so I, I'm not saying Rolf was wrong. I'm just saying that uh, that was my first sort of recollection of it personally. Uh, he uh, continues here on random encounters with snooker players. I bumped into Mark King uh, when we were at the qualifiers in Sheffield. A great guy. And for some reason, I bumped into him at all the World Championship qualifiers I've attended in various settings when he was playing, of course. I have a picture of the... I have a picture of the encounter in the hotel that evening, which is probably not so great content for a podcast. Anyway, uh, hang on. Now, for some reason, I'm, this is trying to print out. It's a good email, but I didn't actually want to print it. There we go. Let's just stop there. Uh, it's not attached to a printer. Of course, Luca Brussel, I'm just uh, at a tangent here, he went on a quiz show <laughs> in Belgium last week. Didn't do too well, but came away with a printer. Uh, probably on balance would rather have been the players' championship. But anyway, uh, just to follow, continue, uh, conclude the email, that's, I guess that's, that's it for me for now. No puns or jokes at this point. Being German and with a dire sense of humour makes me insecure when considering the high bar and standards set by the other listeners of your show. <laughs> well, very self-deprecating. Uh, now, on the subject of Mark King, we did have an email asking about his disciplinary, which has been going on now for over a year. It was the Welsh Open last year. Chris Penny. I'm not going to read it all out, Chris, so you don't mind, but... Um, there's no news yet, but I think the reason initially it took so long was there was an external investigation beyond the WPBSA. Um, it's the WPBSA who are uh, investigating, not World Snooker. I think it's important to say that because pe some people have said, oh, WST dragging their feet. It's not their investigation. But I believe the w WPBSA investigation um, had to take a back seat because there was uh, another investigation, uh, you know, by the authorities. But as for how this is going to be concluded, I don't know. I think it, it has gone on too long. You know, it was one match over a year ago. And in fairness to all sides, including the player in, in question, it really does need to be resolved soon. I don't, I don't really see how anyone could argue with that. But there's always, with these things, lawyers get involved, legal things, you know, get dragged out. And, um, you know, but having said that, if they can prosecute those 10 Chinese players in basically about six months, then surely they could conclude this one of one case you know, in a year, you would think. That's without knowing all all the ins and outs of it, of course. Um, and it's important to say that, that I don't, but I think just on a basic kind of um, fairness level, really all round to the game and to the player, 
let's try and get it sorted as soon as we can. Uh, Richard Colley, uh, I hope this email finds you well. Thank you, Richard. It does. Any idea how the bidding works for the new announced ranking tournaments for TV rights from a UK point of view? Presumably if the Saudi ranking event next season is being labelled as the fourth major, does it mean it will be on Eurosport and the BBC? I also assume if there was a new European event, does that mean it would be on Eurosport? If no UK TV coverage, does it default to Matchroom Live? Any inside knowledge on this will be helpful and interesting. Uh, it doesn't have to be on the BBC because it's a major. You know, they, they don't they they don't have a sort of um, divine monopoly on major tournaments, obviously. Um, and I don't think it will be on the BBC. I think they, they've got the snooker they, they want. Um, I don't know where it'll be on, uh, is the truth. But I, I do think that... Um, the Eurosport obviously have a contract, but if new events are added, I think they have to be sort of negotiated into that. So, you know, it may well be on Eurosport, it may not be. The Riyadh event is. The uh, Riyadh season World Masters of Snooker will be on Eurosport, uh, March 4th to 6th. And uh, the World Feed commentary there um, is apparently being done... Well, I know it's been done by Phil Yates and Ken Doherty, because they've told me. Jack Zowski apparently will be out there, and I heard Neil Robertson's name mentioned as well. So I believe that's the team, but that's for the that's the world feed. So that goes around the world. So various parts of the world will get that. Eurosport do their own commentary on tournaments, of course. I will be involved, um, but uh, they're going out there for it. Um, but in terms of new events, it, 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 obviously the BBC, ITV are not sports channels; they're general channels. So they have to balance sport with all the other programmes they show. A channel like Eurosport, I'm sure, would show as much snooker as it can because it rates really well. They're sports channels. They've got two of them. They've got Discovery Plus, the digital um, platform as well. So, you know, that's why they show the qualifying. People love watching snooker and therefore why not show it, you know. But there are, I'm sure, contractual things that go on and, and, and discussions and, and so on. But I think when there are new events, you know, they, they, they have to be... There are, there are extra... Uh, sort of negotiations beyond what's all the, what already is in the contract. Um, so I don't know whether that answers your question, but but it is an answer of sorts. Now Adam has written in here. Says thanks to another correspondent. My vague memory from back in 2002 has been cleared up, and the cloth ripping incident I described involving Ronnie and not Mark Williams. So this was, it was a claim that Mark had thrown his cube in the air and ripped the cloth, but it, it turned out it was Ronnie O'Sullivan. Immediately after this was cleared up, uh, you ironically spotted Ronnie run past. Thus, we achieved clarity and experienced something of an owl meeting with a snooker player at the same time. Great days. Thank you, Adam. I, yeah, I, I, I say it looked like Ronnie. It might not have been, actually, but um, kind of, I don't know. It was a sort of dark-haired man running, and I was at a snooker tournament, so I thought... And he was running quite quick, which Ronnie does. Um, so I thought maybe <laughs> maybe it was him, but, uh, yeah, he may not have been. And, and that's, you know, about as sort of um, a lousier sort of anecdote as you can get, isn't it? He may have been someone, and it may not have been. <laughs> Adam has, has uh, linked to this. In, I have no memory of this at all, literally none. But Ronnie, yeah, he, he throws his coupe in the air after a shot and um, he sort of lands inadvertently on the table and, and they have to change the cloth after the session. <laughs> so table fitters have to come in because there's a slight tear. So, um, but yeah, I mean, if you hadn't told me that and or at least, you know, sent me the, you know, the full details, the full uh, uh, information, I wouldn't, I wouldn't have known. Uh, uh, Brian McGovern, hope you're keeping well. Sadly, I've a, I've a need to rant. Oh, we always like a rant, Brian. I'm sitting here watching the Players' Championship on Monday night, and I'm watching the Players' Championship here in the Republic of Ireland on ITV4. The annoying thing is, as being in the Republic of Ireland, I don't have access to ITVX. I'd have liked to have had the option to enjoy Joe Perry and Michael McMullen on ITVX, covering the John Higgins-Ding Jun Wee match. 
I know with the Tour Championship coming up, there'll be two tables in operation. Will ITB Snooker put the other match on the YouTube channel? I feel it'll be good for people outside the UK. I enjoy the podcast and apologies for the rant. It wasn't much of a rant, was it, really? It was quite reasoned, I think. Um, will they put it on the YouTube channel for people outside the UK? No, because ITV is a, a UK channel. Um, and the rights outside the UK are actually held by Eurosport and held by other people. Um, so I think <clears throat> it's a bit of an anomaly. Um, I've heard people say you can't get ITV4 in Ireland, but obviously you can. Uh, but it's not actually an Irish channel, obviously. Um, one thing I will say, a general point, you know, this was uh, a new thing, full commentary on Table 2, it's something people have said they were looking for. Unbelievably, and this is not you, Brian, I'm talking separately, but unbelievably people started complaining immediately that, oh, the wrong match is on, you should put Ding Higgins on ITV1 and the other one on ITVX, even though you can watch them both, <laughs> you can watch them both in full commentary. It's incredible to me how... People call out for service, and the minute it's actually given to them, they still find things to complain about. Um, it's actually ridiculous. Uh, you know, I, mean, I know I'm, t- I'm again, t- talking about people online, which is not really um, indicative of how people think generally, but even so, come on, you know? A lot of work went into actually making that happen. They had to have a full crew, you know, the camera operators. Normally, Table 2 is just a remote control camera. They had proper camera people on it. They had two, uh, director and producer came up specially, built a commentary box, they had the graphics, they had the full sort of stats fruit machine, as they call it. They had a pro- It was a proper production. Michael and Joe did a great job. Um, so uh, let's not run it down, because there's no reason to. Um, because the, the answer to that is, well, we won't do it again, if that's what you think. <laughs> you know. So anyway, but that, that, that's a separate point, Brian, to the one you made. Um, I, I, you might look into that. I don't know whether you, you may be able to get ITVX, you know, because uh, I was talking to someone there about this, having read your email, and they seem to think you can get it in Ireland. So I'd look into that. I may be wrong, but uh, don't give up all hope. <coughs> now, Steve has written in. Now, Steve used to write, uh, do a, a website, Maximum Snooker, which was very good. And uh, he says, Thank you again for all you do for spreading the gospel of snooker. I thoroughly enjoy your podcast, and although I'm not involved with the game in any capacity anymore, you always keep me updated with all the gossip and big points of contention. I don't often get to attend Snooker tournaments anymore. You see, here you say, Steve, you're not involved with the game. You are involved because you actually came to the tournament. And fans are as involved as anybody. They're paying the money to come along and and justify the whole thing. So when you say you're not involved, you're very much involved. But anyway, he says, when I recently attended the Players' Championship in Telford, I was equally shocked and disappointed to find out that the World Snooker Tour merchandise stand wasn't even there anymore. I know many of your listeners are disappointed with the fair and offer at the merch stand usually, but I was genuinely looking forward to buying a pen or a new T-shirt as my wardrobe has been mostly dominated by Pokemon-themed clothing in the past few years. My friend who recently attended the World Grand Prix, shout out to Jared in Leicester, also mentioned that there wasn't even a basic merchandise stand there either. We were also extremely disappointed that the queues and balls for the mini tables in the queue zone were taken away during the mid-session interval. Do you know what's happened with the merch stand? Is is there a reason the overall fan experience is getting worse? Is there a plan with a new branding overall overhaul for WST to bring some new merchandise in soon? Uh, Steve, I'm, I'm not intimately involved in this, as you'd imagine, but it seems I can understand why you're disappointed. The thing is, when people come to tournaments, okay, they've already bought the ticket, and depending on your circumstances, you might have some more money to spend. Okay, So what are you going to spend it on? Maybe food and drink? But like you say, you want a memento of your time there. They don't do programmes anymore, which I always used to enjoy collecting. Certainly buying one, you know, when I went myself. 
or like you say, some sort of keepsake of the fact you've been there. And the fact, is, if you're saying there was nothing at all, is not any good, is it? Um, it may be that they find in some of these events outside of the, the so-called majors, the take-up isn't great um, compared to what they sort of lay out to, to put the thing on in the first place. But I think if, you, if you've got ambitions to compete with other sports, you should be doing what other sports do. And certainly, you go to any other sport, and there's loads of things to buy. And a lot of it's overpriced, and a lot of it you don't necessarily need, but people still buy it. Um, so it seems a missed opportunity, certainly, uh, for people who you know want to spend money at the tournaments if these things are not available. So uh, I'm sorry you're disappointed by that. Hopefully things will change going forward. Um, I mean, I, listen, I, I, I made the point. It's amazing all the years I've been involved in snooker, which is getting on for like 20, what is it now, 27 years in a professional capacity. Still no one's had the idea to put the World Championship trophy on a key ring or a, or a pen or a T-shirt or a baseball cap. You know, that is an iconic, and, and that's an overused word, but it's an iconic, you know, trophy sort of uh, associated with a big sporting event and no one has monetized it. That trophy should be trademarked and used for merchandise. It's not, and I'm not a genius at all. I mean, absolutely not when it comes to marketing. But it seems obvious to me. But no one's thought of it. <laughs> Maybe at the Crucible, we'll see a range of clothing, and I'll, of course, I'll be demanding a cut. Stuart Clark, I sit here writing this email while watching Ronnie play's first round match at the Players Championship. I noticed during his run of victories at the UK Masters and Grand Prix that I never saw him acknowledge a good shot played by any of his non-Chinese opponents. However, I noticed. He was effusive with his use of the leg tap and the table tap if any of his Chinese opponents played a good shot. I've long thought O'Sullivan is one of the canniest PR, PR operators in world sport, always managing a narrative to his short and long-term aims. I have a theory he is well aware of where the future power base of the game sits and that he knows full well that applauding any Chinese opponents plays very well with the hugely lucrative Chinese market. Just a theory. Well, Stuart, it is just a theory. Um, you know, I'm no way of knowing if that's in any way... Uh, correct, but it's an interesting theory uh, and one to watch for maybe in the future uh, I think Ronnie is smart in a lot of ways actually, but anyway uh, Stuart May uh, from Oakhampton he says, uh, I love the podcast and always look forward to every episode they're getting so regular now uh, that I'm surprised there isn't a Sunday lunchtime omnibus like EastEnders back in the day <laughs> well of course you can listen to them back to back Stuart if you really want to, anyway he says I'm writing this on the Saturday morning before the semi-final between Mark Selby and Zhang Ander. Three of us have travelled up from Devon and Bristol for the Players' Championship weekend in Telford, two of us from Thursday, hoping that Ronnie has reached the semi-final stage. However, my friend Richard has turned into something of a jinx for Ronnie. We also went to the Crucible for three days in April last year that included both days of the quarter-finals. We had Table 1 tickets for Ronnie's final session against Brussels, and Richard, being a big fan of Ronnie's, was eagerly anticipating seeing his idol play live. Alas, things did not go well for Richard, as Ronnie lost all seven frames in that session to lose from 10-6 up. Turn the pot forward ten months, and here we go again, eagerly anticipating seeing Ronnie playing at Selby in a hugely hyped match. Again, things did not go well for Richard, as his hero again did not win a frame. At 4-0, his 11th consecutive losing frame. I even jokingly said to Richard, I'm going to go and bargain Ronnie for a cut of his prize money for Richard to leave the arena. This must be some sort of record, as surely not many snooker fans have watched 13 frames live involving Ronnie, in which he's lost every single one. He soon got over it, and we're looking forward to the last two matches. One thing I did find slightly odd was unreserved seating. It's OK if there are plenty of spare seats, but imagine being the last person in for a sold-out session trying to spot the only empty seat. 
The venue and surrounding areas are fantastic, with many food outlets and a huge shopping centre. It's back here next year from the 17th, from the 17th of March to the 23rd, so I may be back for the whole week. The late date leads me to wonder whether the Tour Championships will be dropped from the calendar, as it's only two weeks between the players and the start of the World Qualifiers. I hope you might be able to shed some light on that. Keep up the good work. Hopefully a podcast award will come your way soon. I think that, that ship has sailed, Stuart, but uh, on, on the point you make, uh, well, yes, I mean, very unlucky, you're right, to see <laughs> to see Ronnie O'Sullivan play 13 frames and not win one. I mean, it reminds me of a friend of mine, he went to a cricket match, and uh, he wasn't a fan of cricket particularly, but Brian Lara was playing, this was back at 20 years ago, back in the day, and Brian Lara, you know, was obviously quite rightly fated as being a, a genius batsman, and he was out for eight, and my friend said, oh, he's no good, <laughs> he's no good, he's out for eight, he can't bat, just on the basis of that one match uh, but anyway um, the unreserved seating thing it may be they just didn't expect so many people I mean obviously the crowds have been so good at Telford um, were so good there um, so maybe next year it might change but, but to do do come back again you're right about the surrounding area actually you don't you don't have to walk far from the venue not even five minutes there's a massive um, sort of uh, area of, of restaurants and, and shops and so on um, which is good if you've got if you've got some time to spare and you want to go and have something to eat Next season, yeah, I mean, I've seen um, I've seen a very confidential uh, copy of the calendar, uh, which uh, came my came my way in unusual circumstances, which I won't go into. But anyway, um, the Tour Championship is definitely on, but there's no event as it stands right now, and obviously it may change. There's no event between the players and the Tour Championship, so you can't get in. Put it this way: if you don't get in the Players Championship, you can't get in the Tour Championship. It's going to be twelve from sixteen who play in that. Um, but it is on the calendar, and I'm sure that'll be officially announced and, and in, in uh, more proper order very soon. I think actually, I think um, you know we're going to see that very soon. Uh, now, I must apologise for uh, inaccuracy last week, and people will be saying, "Well, you know, what about all the other weeks?" Uh, but I, I met, there was a question about how people ca- ca- keep their tour cards, and would 65 stay on? if Martin O'Donnell is inside the top 64. And Matt Hewitt, the, the man from the WPSA who keeps across this, he said, um, he said, it, it is, 65th would not stay on if Martin O'Donnell finished inside the top 64. Effectively, it's one fewer place. It's never a strict one to eight. And it's very rarely 128 exactly, but it also gives some breathing room for any players who stay on by qualifying for the Crucible, which can't be forecast in advance. So Matt has cleared that up, which we're grateful for. Um, and apologies for, uh, well, just inaccurate information. And, and let's be clear, it's because I couldn't be bothered to actually find out the the, <laughs> the facts before before answering the email. But uh, speaking of which, Henry Cutting has written in. He says, apologies for the length of the email, but I'd like to touch upon the subject of qualification process for obtaining a tour card to the professional tour. And without getting you any hot water, we'd like to know your opinions on it. To give you a bit of background, out of the current 1-8 to tour players for the current season, there are four women players, Rianne Evans, Rebecca Kenner, Mink Nutshurt, and Bipat Papun. Now, please correct me if I'm wrong, but I think these four players obtained a tour card through various ways and means on the women's tour as part of a scheme put in place by the WST to widen the diversity of the sport. Yes, they did. I mean, it's now the case that the women's circuit each season supplies uh, two places, um, so in the last few years, there are four women who have made it onto the tour. Now, I'm certain that Henry continues, I'm certainly not against having women players on the snooker tour. Far from it. It's important to display to people that snooker is for everyone. And for a sport which doesn't require much physical prowess, there shouldn't be, really be any reason why women can't be as good as the men. 
and compete on the same tour as them. However, I'm a firm believer that you should earn the right to become a professional sportsman, or a sports person, I guess, uh, Henry, in this case, earn a tour card on the World Snooker Tour. This is by no way me of singling women out in the sport. However, I think it's important to raise a few statistics from their time on the main professional tour since January 2022 for the aforementioned women. Okay, so Rebecca, <coughs> excuse me, Rianne Evans, three wins in 38 matches. Rebecca Kenner, no wins in 28 matches. Mick Nutcher at two wins in 36 matches. And my part, Sarah Papon, no wins in 13 matches. Now, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to understand that those sort of statistics aren't going to get you anywhere near enough points money for you to climb up the rankings. There's a couple of reasons why I'm bringing all this up. Firstly, I think it's unfair on these women to have been thrown into the professional tour when they're clearly not good enough to compete with the tour players. It must be very demoralising for their confidence and, frankly, must be a tad embarrassing for them knowing they're essentially making up the numbers at each event. Secondly, and a more important point, these players are taking up four spaces on the Pro Tour and taking away the opportunity for four of the players to achieve their dream of being a professional snooker player. I appreciate that World Snooker Tour wants to open the game up to women and a more diverse audience. However, practically handing four women players a chance on the Pro Tour and taking away the opportunity for others is not the way to do it. Should these players want a chance at the Tour, they should have to do it the same way as everyone else, and that's through Q School or other qualification competitions, not through the women's tour, where the standard is obviously not anywhere near the level. I play a lot of darts, and qualification to get a tour card on the PDC does not include the women's tour. If you want to obtain a tour card, then you have to go through it the same way as everyone else, like just like Lisa, Lisa Ashton did in 2020 to earn her tour card. I've been to Q School a few times to achieve a card on the PDC, and if I knew I'd missed out by one place as they handed it to the women's tour, I'd be outraged. For a lot of people, this is not only their dream, but their livelihood. Just to emphasise, I'm not singing out women. I also believe the likes of Stephen Hendry, although an obvious great in our sport, should not be getting an invitational card as he wanted to come back and play. If you want to play on the tour, you need to earn the right. I appreciate you may not want to comment too much on this, but it would be good to get your overall opinion and correct any of the misinformation I may have said. As a relatively new listener, I'm loving the podcast and keep up the good work. Thank you, Henry. Um, I think we've got to dispel the idea that it's a, a level playing field now. It isn't. It's, it's completely dominated by... The Brits, it's all based in Britain. The, the Q schools are based in Britain. There is one now, of course, in Asia. Um, but that's taken a long time to set up. There's no genetic reason why, you know, 70% of the tour are from the UK. It's not that people in Lithuania can't play snooker. It's that they haven't had the opportunity. So it's not been a level playing field anyway. There is an attempt through giving tour cards to women and people from different parts of the world who've won various qualifiers. There is an attempt to as you say, diversify snooker a little bit, make it more uh, representative of the audience who are watching rather than just the same, you know, <laughs> the same kind of guys from the UK, which is what it mainly is. Um, I know you haven't mentioned that. You're talking specifically about the women. I, I support the idea of tour cars for women in principle. I think you, you're quite right. You've read out the results there and they haven't had a good time of it. Um, but I think it's what you're paying forward to the future because hopefully the idea is if, you know, girls see the women playing on the tour now, they may become interested in snooker. In maybe 15 years from now, we have a world-class female player, but it may start by them, for example, watching the mixed doubles tournament, seeing Rianne Evans or someone playing in a, in a TV tournament and saying, OK, I didn't know that was for me or that I could do that, but now I'm going to take the game up. So that's what it's about. It's about the future, really, rather than the present. As far as taking away other people's places, I'm not sure that's quite right, is it? Everyone still has the chance to qualify. If you don't get through Q School, it's not the fault of Rebecca Kenner being given a place on tour. It's because you haven't got through Q School. Uh, the invitational cards, you mentioned Stephen Hendry there, they're extra cards. They're not taking anyone's place. 
they're they're literally cards that are given in addition to the people who are already on. I don't think you'll ever have a system everyone will agree with, but the fact is it's been massively biased for for decades towards British men. And various non-British players have managed to break in, and some of them, obviously, Neil Robertson would be an example, have had really successful careers. But Neil, like the Chinese players, have had to come and live in Britain. Um, and that's the real issue for me, actually. It's not um, giving cards to women or, or giving cards to various winners of international events. It's actually how do you genuinely spread the game around the world when so much of the base is still in the UK? Um, that's a challenge that you know hasn't really been maybe genuinely sort of taken on. Uh, you know, still the qualifiers are all here and, and so much of the, you know, the infrastructure is here. So I think that's more of a challenge. But anyway, thank you for your views on that. And uh, we're always, we always like to hear a range of opinions. Now, Steve Madwick has written in here. He says, we're now, of course, on the cusp of the 200th official 147 break in snooker. Well, quite right, we've had 199. Now, of course, if there's one at the Championship League, this will be overtaken, uh, but it could come, of course, next week in, in Riyadh, and of course, then they have the golden ball, so it would be a kind of, well, it would be a golden moment, I suppose. Anyway, so it got me wondering who and where it might come from, what with the frequency of them increasing this year. Gary Wilson made the last on the 18th of February. I have a little passion project page on 147s, and just, and was just considering adding a timeline infographic to the page to highlight landmark maximums. Okay, so this is, uh, Sort of blog, I suppose you've done, or the website you've done on it. It's fascinating to go through the list and pick up specific counts. The first was Steve Davis, the 10th Peter Ebden, the 25th Jason Prince, the 50th David Gray, the 100th Mark Selby, the 147th Dave Gilbert. I could, as could many, happily name the first 100th and 147th, but the little intersections I'd probably never have guessed. My favourite 147 stat ever, which I endlessly wait to come up with at a quiz at some point, leads to the question, which currently active player has scored three maximum breaks but has never won the highest break prize for himself? The answer is Ali Carter. He made one in the World Championship in 2008, the German Masters Qualifiers in 2016 and the British Open 2021. Ronnie O'Sullivan made one, of course, on the previous day of the World Championship. Ross Muir made a 147 the same day as the German Masters qualifying. John Higgins had already made one four days earlier. At the British Open. Not much use to anyone, but an interesting stat that many might not be aware of. Maybe even Ali Carter himself. I'm sure Ali does <laughs> does know that, yeah. In fact, I'm pretty sure I've heard him say it. Anyway, one more. The average age of players making a 147 in 2024 so far is 38.2 years old, somewhat skewed by Higgins becoming the oldest ever at 48 years, 268 days in the Championship League a couple of weeks ago, which got me looking. The first 50 maximums were made in a period of 22 years, between the 11th of January 1982 on the 17th of November 2004, with the average age of the player being 26.64 years of age. The last 50 completed in a period of just five years since April 2019, by players averaging 37.84 years of age. Thank you, Steve. I think the, the thing with that is, obviously, you know, it, it, in many ways, it's the same players, isn't it? They've got older, but they're still good. And we know that from sort of various tournaments that have been won lately. But anyway, thank you for the feedback there and the information. Uh, Keith here says, uh, I enjoyed the Players' Championship final, but two re-racks. The second one was a touching ball, and it was anything but a stalemate. Should there be a role for the referee to step in and say not yet in these situations? Things have been mentioned before that the less experienced player can seem almost forced into accepting the suggestion from his opponent. Would be good to hear your thoughts. Uh, well, Keith, uh, I, I kind of agreed with the second one. Maybe could have been played out a little bit longer. Um, it, always in this case, it tends to be there's either a red that's gone maybe to bulk or n near a pocket and the players are just protecting it 
and a stalemate ensues. The second one, I think, in some ways, on in on Sunday's final, was a kind of overhang from the first one. In a way, they didn't want to get, or Mark Allen anyway, didn't seem to want to get sort of embroiled in that. Shangander accepted it. The referee, I actually spoke to a referee about this, and they said, well, there's no good reason for us to refuse a, a re-rack um, and get involved in a kind of argument or put your foot down. If the players both want it, it's not really for the referee to say no. There may be maybe the odd occasion where... You know, they, they, they actually would sort of say, well, why? But, um, I think that the, um, the idea is that they kind of just want to keep it going, um, for themselves as well. Jan Vass, the referee, by the way, on Sunday, 39th ranking final, one more than the great John Williams. So Jan, now a record breaker, uh, such a good ref as well, just keeps out of the way, does the job, has a quiet authority. He's a tall bloke, which I think helps, but, and everyone respects him, but he just does the job well, doesn't he? Um, Christine says, uh, I've never heard the word chuntering before. I had to look it up. Turns up chuntering was exactly what he was doing. I think this is Mark Allen I referred to as chuntering. Yeah, you see a lot of that in snooker. Snooker players like a good chunter. But it's usually sort of getting on their own case rather than anything else. Uh, thank you, Christine. And uh, we move on to Richard Bassey. Now, he, he, Richard has been around the world. He's our, our version of Lisa Stansfield. He said, there's a contemporary reference, he says, my ten months of touring Europe were not, as you suggested, due to me being on the run, but because my work enables me to work remotely 100%. So I took the plunge and managed to visit 15 countries without losing my valuable possessions or my mind. I'll begin in Austria and the tremendous 15 Red Snooker Club in Vienna. This club has hosted the Vienna Open over many years, a prime event that most recently saw the late withdrawal of Luca Purcell, who soon realised it came too quickly after his 17-day Sheffield party. The club itself feels like a fantastic labyrinth of snooker tables, which you'll see in the video I took. Uh, as with my Google map, yes, I'm sorry, listeners won't be able to see it as you read. Well, yes, the video uh, is a beautiful uh, video, actually, and it's on YouTube if you want to look it up. The gentleman that runs the place was there. We had a nice long chat after I finished playing, where he told me about the history of the venue and the professionals who've travelled there to play, such as Mark Joyce, Peter Ebden, David Grace, Mark King and Stephen Lee. We settled down more into our drinks and our chat, and he continued to discuss hopes for the future there, and a resurgence of the Vienna Open, which had been in, on, on hiatus since the first COVID outbreak. My visit was in August 2022, so I can only assume planning for the 2023 tournament was still some way off. I saw on the notice boards evidence of organised leagues and tournaments of Vienna, so I can confidently report that Snooker there is in a very healthy state. The 2023 final contested by Florian Nursler, Austrian, and Lukas Kleckers, Germany, and also rounds included Robert Milkins, Tom Ford, Nigel Bond, and Alan Taylor. In summary, this would be a country and city that could definitely have potential for hosting a tournament like the European Masters or a brand new tournament for Austria. I know there's many more factors that determine the viability, but I'm, all I'm saying is at least it's got a fighting chance. In my view, there's real enthusiasm for the sport here, just as we see in Berlin. Of course, Austria, it was a different part of Austria, but they did actually host the European Masters in early 2020. Of course, uh, Mozart was a billiards player in his youth, uh, so they've got some history there. Uh, Richard says, I'll move on to Slovakia and Budapest in my next email. So this will become a series. <laughs> and I'm, I'm all for it. I'm pleased, uh, Richard, to receive this correspondence. We'd like to hear about uh, yeah, snooker around the world. Uh, for now, I can't sign off without recognising your magnificent piece of commentary on Tuesday in Telford when a player brought out the rest and you remarked something like, what better place than here to use an iron bridge? Outstanding. Can't believe your co-commentator wasn't doubled up, stifling his hysterical laughter. Personally, I stood, nodded sagely and applauded with a broad smile. Thank you uh, for that, Richard. Uh, yeah, well, you've had to be done. I'd only, been, I'd only been cooking that one up for about three months. It says, finally, the upcoming Riyadh Masters, I can find nothing on the length of matches for any round. Uh, what the best of. 
Also, seeds one and three are drawn to meet in the semis, while seeds two and four are also. It should be one and four and two and three. These are important missing pieces of information about... Well, there are important missing pieces of info about how the golden ball is going to work. Can you help? Um, I don't... I'm not sure about where, where they're seeded. I, I was... I was told that one would play eight, assuming eight beats the wild card. And I think seed one is Luca Brissell, who's the world champion. It's best of seven in all rounds until the final, which is best of nine. Um, the first prize is 250,000, <laughs> which, which tells you why they were keen to get it, get in it. Runner up 125, semi 75, quarters 50. So the, the guarantee basically is 50. I know Mark Williams and Ali Carter have got to play wild cards, but of course they're very likely to beat them. So that's it really. That's the information. Uh, now, Matthew Seals is getting excited about the Crucible, as well as we all are. He says, I've been a regular listener to your podcast for many years now, uh, or for several years now, and had long thought that sending in correspondence was an activity best left to more insightful and imaginative individuals than myself. However, the recent crop of episodes has served to prove beyond all reasonable doubt that you're only too prepared to read out, read out any old nonsense these days, so I thought it was time to chance my arm with a few highly niche questions. With a little over seven weeks to go until the next iteration of the World Championship, it's fair to say that Crucible Fever is beginning to descend upon me. In an attempt to tide myself over in the meantime, I've compiled a YouTube playlist of some classic matches from the last decade or so. I wonder if you or your listeners could suggest any good ones I may have overlooked. A present I've lined up the following. Okay, so these are the matches that Matthew's lined up uh, from recent World Championships to get himself in the mood for this year. So you've got Ding v Trump and Higgins v Trump from 2011. Selby v O'Sullivan 2014, Bingham v Trump and Bingham v Murphy from 2015, Selby v Ding from 2016, Williams Higgins 2018, I remember you saying at the time you thought this was the best ever final, so I'm looking forward to sampling it for myself, Trump v Higgins 2019, Williams v Trump 2022, C v Brussels and Selby v Brussels from 2023, I actually watched both of these in their entirety last year and enjoyed them so much, I'm keen on having a second viewing. As a secondary question, I wonder which years of the tournament you'd pick as having been the best in terms of overall quality and drama. I think 2002 is often cited as a classic tournament, but I was a bit young at the time to have any recollections of my own to judge it on. All I remember about is going to see my GP the morning after the final and him remaining tight-lipped on the result as my mum hadn't let me stay up to watch the conclusion of the final. Returning to pointed hand, last year's incarnation was the most gripping of any I've watched in my adult life, though this probably had something to do with the fact that I took some leave from work, especially to properly immerse myself in it and made my first ever trip to the Crucible too. I suppose our judgments of a tournament's quality will always be informed by subjective factors such as these, but I'd like to hear you opine upon your favourite years nonetheless. Thanks a lot for the marvellous podcast. I'm grateful for the at least weekly snooker fix and also for the combination of an open-minded attitude and a self-effacing wit that you invariably bring to proceedings. Well, thank you, Matthew. Um, <clears throat> you picked some good matches there, obviously recent matches. I would say in terms of world championships, I mean, growing up sort of watching snooker, 92 and 94 were both memorable. I think partly for the finals, but not entirely because of the finals. Obviously, they were both dramatic. Spoiler, Stephen Henry beat Jimmy White both times. Um, there were some good matches earlier on in them, but I think more recently, well, I say more recently, 21 years ago, 2003 was a great tournament. Ken Doherty won all those close matches. Obviously, had the comeback against Paul Hunter in the semis. The final against Mark Williams was really good as well. So if, you, if that's one you haven't watched before, try and check out um, some footage of 2003. Sorry, the phone's just slipping. <laughs> People will say, so are standards. But anyway, uh, yeah, 2003, I would say, would be one to, to look out for. Um, go back and look at some of the matches there. I think you would, uh, well, I think you would enjoy them. Uh, Adam Wareham 
I was interested to learn from you that Gary Wilson is one of 29 players to have won three or more ranking events. This surprised me, as if you'd asked me to name the top 30 players of all time, I don't think I'd have Gary in the list. Sorry, Gary, no offence intended. But you've had Gary in your top 30. There must be some great players, past and present, who have not won three ranking events. Who, in your opinion, are the best of them? Thanks for continuing to provide us with this unique podcast. It's great fun to listen to. I mean, I don't have a top 30, Adam, is, is the simple answer, really, to that. Um, if I did, would Gary Wilson be in it? I'm not sure, really. Obviously, there's more torments now. He's come good of late and played some terrific stuff. You know, you go back, players like Terry Griffiths, Dennis Taylor wouldn't have won three ranking events because there weren't many ranking events in those days. You know, they were great champions of their time. Um, obviously, John Spencer and these sort of people, you know, of their time. But times have changed. The amount of tournaments available have changed. I mean, Alex Higgins didn't win three ranking events, actually. So, um, you know, those sort of names obviously would be in the frame for that, all puns intended. But, uh, you know, that's... <laughs> It's, I think, I, and I, I've, most of my life I've made lists and I've been part of that, but as I get older, I, I, you know, you see in The Guardian now, they rank sort of so-and-so's best films or best records, and it's so reductive, really, because you can, you can enjoy, you know, lots of things equally. They don't have to be ranked. It's quite a male thing, isn't it? And we all do it. I've done it on this podcast. It's fun in a way, but equally, it doesn't get you anywhere either. <laughs> so... um that's kind of my attitude to it now. Uh, yeah, just to... Oh, yeah, Phil McCoy. He says, a great podcast. Hello, great podcast from a sporadic contributor but regular listener. I'll start off with a benign encounter with players between sessions at last year's UK Challenge in York. I always get a full day ticket, so generally eat after the afternoon session. Close to the Barbican, there's an all-you-can-eat Chinese buffet where in the past I've dined on tables adjacent to some of the Chinese lads. However, this year, I went to another local and slightly more upmarket Chinese restaurant, again, just a stone's throw from the venue. On the way, and I passed John Parrott, who was leaving. In fact, he held the door open for me and I thanked him. He gave me a nod. Once inside, I spotted a young Chinese guy dining alone. At first, I thought he might be a student, but it wasn't until I left that the penny dropped and I realised that, that it was probably Zhang Ander. I guess that I would have instantly recognised him now, but last year he was still up and coming so not as recognisable as he as he's become with success. My second curious thought is regarding Ronnie's trademark fist pump. This seems unique to him and something that the referees and his opponents appear to accept and happily reciprocate. I've often wondered what would happen if an opponent walked up to him in preparation to give him the more traditional handshake and chose not to fist pump. I can't imagine Ronnie would meekly accept the handshake, so I assume some kind of controversy or mini rumpus would ensue. I wonder if this scenario will ever play out. Well, Phil, on the on the subject of uh, fist, and thanks for the email, on the subject of, of the fist bumping, <clears throat> Ronnie actually started that in 2019 because he was convinced that it was unhealthy to shake hands or too many germs involved. At the time, everyone said, oh, that's Ronnie being Ronnie. Within a few months, within a few months, nobody was shaking hands because of the pandemic. So in some ways, he was ahead of his time. Mark Selby at the Scottish Open, uh, I think it was Scottish Open 2019, when Ronnie actually came out to fist bump, he actually... May flattened his hand like a piece of paper, rock paper, rock paper scissors, basically, as a joke. And again, it was a gag, and people enjoyed it. But uh, you know, in a way, Ronnie had the last laugh because, as I say, within a few months, nobody was shaking anyone's hand. Uh, we continue uh, with Richard Adamphy. Now, is he back to the issue earlier about the table two? Um, the coverage on ITV. Since having table two on ITVX is overall a very good thing. Now that you can watch the other table with commentary, I think ITV has overtaken Eurosport Discovery Plus in British snooker coverage. 
Eurosport is still very good and has more tournaments than ITV. In addition, my favourite snooker presenter is Rachel Casey. She's very knowledgeable, clearly a genuine fan of snooker, plus she has a charming personality. However, I think ITV has a slightly better punditry commentary lineup. Obviously, there's a big overlap with Eurosport. The courage just seems to be more polished. However, there are some downsides to the introduction of Table 2 on ITVX. When Table 1 finishes before Table 2, the regular coverage used to show the Table 2 match until its conclusion. However, after Trump Wakelin finished, we were told to switch over to ITVX to watch the Table 2 match. The following afternoon, they started showing the Table 2 match on ITV4 after the conclusion of Table 1, but only for a short time before inviting viewers to switch over to Table 2. The ITV4 coverage hadn't even, uh, hadn't, hadn't even over on the schedule, Yet they cut the coverage mid-frame. Coverage stopped 20 minutes before the schedule end of the programme at 4.30. The clear incentive for ITV to force you to watch to switch to ITVX as this gives them valuable information as they know the precise number of people watching if it's exclusively online. However, if you pause the live coverage when watching Table 1 for an extended period, you will miss more of the Table 2 matches. You cannot rewind it and the Table 2 match might even have already finished. Alternative is to wait until it appears on demand on ITVX several hours later, then you can stop watching at any point. On demand viewing is always problematic because you can see how long there is to go. So if the score is 5-3 and there's 10 minutes to go, you already know it isn't enough time for a comeback. Therefore, I always try and manually record the TV coverage to avoid spoilers. However, watching the Table 2 match on ITVX first whilst recording the ITV4 match won't work because the scores on Table 1 are being given out during the Table 2 coverage. You can see why they can't allow rewinding because they need you to watch the adverts maybe a way around it would be to allow rewinding if you subscribe to ITVX Premium. <laughs> well, there's a lot there's a lot there, isn't there? I mean, firstly, it's not always the case that they would go to Table 2 after the Table 1 match. A lot of it is dependent on very simple things, actually, that have nothing to do with snooker, and it's, ba- it's basic health and safety. The crew who work there on the production have a long day. The camera operators, all the people behind the scenes, and basically they need a break to have a meal, to have a break. In any workplace, you're allowed a break of an hour at some point during the day. So if table two looks like, if it's in a decider, okay, they might go to it and show the decider. But if it's like four each or four, three or something, there could be another two hours in it. And that means you're going to roll into the evening. So to give everyone a break, it used to be actually they wouldn't show it. Um, now, it's not a question of being forced to go to ITVX. It's actually an option that wasn't there the previous tournament. Now you can go to ITVX and watch the match. Um, so I'd, I'd be, I'd be, um, I'd warn against looking too much at the negatives of this. As far as I can see, they're positives. It's a, it's a second screen option. On one screen, you have the TV match, which will be shown in its entirety. And on the other screen, you have Table 2, which will be shown in its entirety on a different platform. And this is something people have said they've been looking out for, and now they have it. Um, that's it, really. If you want to watch, obviously, you know, matches in a vacuum, then it's hard these days because, you know, it's so many, you know, like that episode of The Likely Lads years ago, it's, it's the opposite. There's so many ways of finding out the scores. Um, and the reason the scores are given out on the main coverage is to remind people they can watch it live on ITVX. So... I really, I really would warn against people trying to look for negatives in something that didn't exist literally until this last tournament. Because if all the feedback is negative, it just won't happen again. And then all the people will complain, oh, where is it? Where's the Table 2 coverage? <laughs> That's my view on it. it it's, you know, there are imperfections in everything, but the fact is this is a good service, isn't it? I, I think so. So that's it. It, it wasn't the cleanest uh, uh, productions, so what's new? But anyway, we'll be back at some point, and uh, in the meantime, we're members of the Sports Social Network. You can email us, snookerscenepodcast at mail.com, that's snookerscenepodcast at mail.com, 
and we will return, I suspect, uh, maybe just before the Riyadh event. But in the meantime, as we always say, thanks for your patience and forbearance. And as we always say, goodbye bye. Sports Social Podcast Network. Purchase new wiper blades from O'Reilly Auto Parts today and we'll install them for free. See better and drive safer with O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, oh, oh.